So we've been in this series now for the past four or so weeks, uh, looking back and looking ahead, both being transformed by our past and kind of being ready for the future again. And today, we spent, kind of spent the last four weeks looking back, trying to deal with our past or set some postures and expectations for how, as we process all of the past in our lives, but especially the past year and a half. And today, we're going to start the process of looking ahead and that, that process of looking ahead is going to require us to talk about actions that we will take and practices we'll embrace and directions we want to devote ourselves to but before we even get into that bit we need to have a day of centering on our ultimate hope in the future and putting that in light of our present experience so kind of going to the very end and what can we can expect in the end of all things which I kind of did a couple months ago with Revelation, but he'll have a different spin on it uh, today. And that effect of that, I hope, will leave us with a posture for how we then embrace our agency, our responsibility, and our actions going forward. Because a lot can happen if we just start trying to do and control and fix. A lot can happen if we don't come from that with a posture that's rooted in a hope that is beyond us, a hope that is beyond our capacity, our resources, our strength, our imaginations, our technology, our knowledge, our collaboration. Our hope is in Jesus who has invaded already our present world and will continue to do so. And one day we'll do it in full. And it's out of that expectation that our posture is going to be influenced. So I want to kind of break that down today by reading through uh, Romans 8, uh, 18 through 27. I guess This is Paul writing in perhaps the greatest chapter of the whole Bible. You can only take one with you. Might as well just take Romans 8. It kind of covers all the bases, and uh, I'm going to pick a section right in the middle of that. Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it. And hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we, have, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought. But that very Spirit intercedes besides too deep for words, and God, who searches the heart, knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So here's the outline today, kind of four parts that we're going to run through. We're going to start with, get that one. So we're going to first talk about the magnitude of our hope, then the content of it. What is it that we actually hope for? And as we look at that content, what we set our hope on is going to influence what we try to embrace now. The invisibility of our hope. And then all three of those things is what is going to set our current posture in light of that hope. And that posture will be how we engage in present circumstances that are in conflict with uh, that future hope. So let's start to break that down, and we'll see verse by verse how this comes out in the passage. So the first bit, the magnitude of our hope. Paul writes, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. And so we have a hope that is to come that cannot be compared to 
what we're experiencing now. Whatever you can imagine experiencing the suffering in this present circumstance that you experience, the worst of all suffering cannot compare with the future hope that we have waiting on us that is certain. It's important, as I'm going to use that word hope throughout, that Christian hope is not wish. It's not a wishful imagination, and I hope it all turns out okay. Christian hope is, has a, a higher degree of certainty. It is a promise rooted in God's faithfulness in the past that he said he was going to do something. He did it through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and that has stamped for certain a future expectation. Our hope, then, is not we, we wish everything would work out and go okay. It is a certainty that we expect to come in the future. And what Paul's saying is you can't even compare that to the suffering that you experience now, no matter how bad it can be. Elsewhere in 2 Corinthians, he says that our suffering, he says our, our troubles are light and momentary. And this is written by a guy who experienced prison and persecution and shipwreck and sleepless nights and anxiety in all of his churches. Second Corinthians 11, he gives a full catalog of his sufferings. And it's him who writes that the suffering of this life is light and momentary for, compared to the glory that we're going to receive. And so it's not worth comparing in two ways, quantitatively and qualitatively. So when I say quantitatively, I mean in terms of sheer length of time. The suffering of this present life cannot be compared with the length of time that is to come. St. Teresa of Avila says it like this. I don't need it on my compliment. There she is. This is a Spanish nun. She says, in light of heaven, the worst suffering on earth will be seen to be no more serious than one night in an inconvenient hotel. She's describing how short and perspective our present life is in light of the sheer length of time eternity has come. We fret quite a bit over something that is in reality compared with infinite eternity, which our brains can probably comprehend. It comprehend it's just very short. And so quantitatively, we cannot compare something that is so short with the work that is to come. I like to compare. I mean, maybe this comparison analogy in my mind is a sign of my own greed and idolatry for comfort. But I just imagine the worst possible, inconvenient, most disgusting job you could ever imagine if that was your day-to-day -day life. And you thought that was just your whole life and that was that. How brutal that would be in your mind versus if someone said, this will be a brutal job. It's going to be terrible and disgusting. It'll be the worst on the earth. You will do it for six months. And then from every year after that, you're going to get a million dollars and you're going to get a place on the beach and you will be there for the rest of your life. You would go into that six month job with a higher degree of endurance, knowing what is to come or even something that's more relevant to Many of our lives, or some young folks, the life that is to come for you. When you're in college, you set your mind on the long-term effects of having a degree that you hope are true. You get that degree, and it's going to make your life better. Opportunities are going to open up. And so in the moment, you have a short period of time when you have to suffer under the desk lamp in late hours to study and to write papers and to make yourself do it as in, within view of the glory that is to come once you get that degree and have to pay off your debt for life. When you're a job that you have that is good enough to get by. But when you're in college, you're doing that suffering in hopes of the present life or the, the future life that comes from. Quantitatively, it's not worth comparing. But also qualitatively, the suffering of this present life is not worth comparing to the glorious life that awaits us when Jesus returns. Yeah, I'm going down, man. Welcome to the show, brother. Uh, so we, so it can't compare with what is to come. And that's going to get to our second part here, the content of our hope. And I'm going to lay it down. Why it's so good, the picture that we are waiting on. And I even got a color for this man. So we can really be memorized and get it down. Let me read this here, verses 19 through 23. 
For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was, was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly while we wait for adoption, adoption, the redemption of our bodies. So this content of our hope is so important because what you set your hope on begins transforming you now. If you set your hope on comfort in this life and wealth and pleasure in this life and comfort that is to come, that will influence how the decisions you make now and what you set your mind on now. But if you set your mind on these hopes that I'm about to describe to you, that then influences the values and the things you embrace in this life now. And so Paul has three things that we can expect and hope for in the future. The first bit is the stuff I'm talking about in the green, that our adoption, our revealing of the children of, of God, that our identity as God's children will be solidified and revealed. If you know the gospel well, you know that our adoption is already certain. We already are God's children. It's not like we're not going to be that for a while. And one day we hope that he will make us that. We are already his children. But if you are in this world, you know that we are plagued with doubt. There's obstacles to that. The accuser still prowls around and tells us that that's not who we are. And we experience a sense of, of, of frustration with that. And we also can't detect who other children of God are in terms of redeemed like God has brought them back into the family through Jesus. But what will come is a security in that identity, a revelation that that is indeed who we really are. And so in this life, if you live a life hoping or with our mind on that hopeful expectation, then you then are able to detach from the tangible means that you normally would try to find your identity in. It is our temptation to look at only what's right before us and find a sense of security and definition of who I am, of my identity, and things that seem more tangible and available now. Our relationships, our desires, our marital status, whether we have kids, our careers, our degrees, our talents, our affinities, what we like. People use that whole summary to define who we are, but every single one of those things is incredibly great. It's incredibly vulnerable. It will fall through your fingers like sand. But this is a secure identity that penetrates beneath those things that we can rest secure in if we set our hopes on it. So then we can engage in the present life and all those things that matter deeply to us while holding them loosely, knowing that they are not guaranteed. We can lose them at any time. Things that we value, people we love and value and embrace, there's no guarantee or control in our, in our grasp that we can harness and keep those things permanent. But this secure personal identity in Jesus is permanent and untouchable and unbreakable. Later on in the same epic chapter, he says, we cannot be separated, that cannot be taken away from us. And so if our hope is on that secure identity as his child being revealed one day permanently, we then embrace the physical life of holding loosely the, uh, the other things more invested in our grasp. So one day it will be revealed for sure with, to us with that obstacle into the world that we are indeed God's children. Amen. Second thing in purple, the redemption of our bodies. This is actually like one sermon. There should be a lot of sermons on the redemption of our body. Because the biblical view of human beings is that our person, who we are, is a body-soul unity. 
We are not just soul, like angels, just spirit. We are not just bodies, like animals. We are the only creature that we know of that is body and soul in you. And God cares for it and is planning to redeem and heal the whole person. There is no hatred of or denial of our embodied life. And so that has, this has two parts to it. First, a care for the physical body, like the physical well-being of the body. This is why it is out of this hopeful expectation and trust that God cares for creation, even your very body, that Christians throughout the past dozen years have been instrumental in caring for the physical health of other people, both in the church and outside the church. Rodney Stark wrote this outstanding book called The Rise of Christianity at a tremendous page turner when he's trying to describe how it was the case that the gospel spread from 12 random, uneducated hillbillies to be a spread across the Roman Empire in like 300 years. How in the world had it happened? He describes the extraordinary uh, actions of Christians that led to a conversion of the pagan imagination. And one of those things were when there was a plague, Christians were the ones who cared deeply about the healing of people in the plague and caring for their physical bodies and loved them, some towards healing, some towards death, and even died to selves on the way to that. And it was a witness to this pagan world that God might care for your physical health and well-being and your body breaking down. And he's not okay with that decay. He's going to make it right. And so then from that time, Christians have been instrumental every step of the way as modern medicine has progressed. I remember in Cincinnati, I don't know the numbers in Indianapolis yet, still learning my time here, but in Cincinnati, out of the eight major hospitals, seven of them were Christian, or had Christian roots and Christian foundations. It was a Christian people that invested time, energy, research, and resources to make it happen, to advance modern medicine, to cure diseases, to care for the sick and the broken, to make space for people even that were dying. Think about hospice care that gives dignity to human beings that are dying to say, we are not going to cast you off. God cares too much for your body and will love you to the end. And yet somehow now Christians have become the ones that are resistant to that advancement Amen. out of a distorted view of, well, if God's going to make it right one day, who cares about the body? Man? Instead, it's God's going to make it right one day out of witness of that hopeful expectation. Let's care for the body now. And if there's any way that we can care for someone's physical health, prevent death, advance a concern for their physical well-being, while not putting our final hope in that, remember, we're holding it loosely, we do it. Christians have been for a long time. Let's not be embrace the distorted vision of that Christian life. God cares for the bodies we should do. Second half of that redemption of our body is that in the actual context of the rest of Romans 8, he's talking about the spirit has been given to us as a permanent gift and that it's not just some dead marker that tells us we are God's children. The spirit immediately begins working to put to death the sin that wages war in our bodies. While you have the spirit now, his primary action is not to give you images and crazy miraculous gifts of that he does that too. His primary action is putting to death the sin in your body. That your body is the space of physical creation that you actually have some agency and control over. And God has given you the power in the spirit to begin the long-term, up-and-down, difficult process of reflecting in your body the holy vision he has for what it means to be truly human. He's made us in his image, in his image to reflect that we worship him, and he's, and he's given us capacity to, to push into that and to reflect what it means to be truly human 
And the spirit starts working today, the second he enters into you to help you live a holy life. And we wait one day, he is going to break in and bring full, absolute redemption from the slavery to sin. And sin's effect on us will be no more. But until that day, we wage war in our bodies. As Paul says, take every thought captive and give it to God in order to live out in our body the, the, the holy reality he's laid out for us. And so we wait for that dual body-soul redemption that is to come. And in the meantime, we press on caring for the sick and living holy lives. And when we fail or when our bodies fail us, it's out of faithful hope in this that we say, this is not the end. We wait for the final resurrection. If you go to Damon, you got to hold it loosely. If you don't like that tension or paradox, it's going to be tough to be a Christian. You're going to rage against your effects and despair at the effects of sin and death in your body. But with this hope, we can engage in that process with hope that the victories are even won, even if the battle seems insurmountable now. So the third bit is that it's not just our bodies, but our bodies are part of creation. So what God's doing in your body is going to expand to the whole creation. So we're groaning, but also creation's groaning. Because if you remember the series I did last time, probably already forgotten, probably half of y'all might not even heard it. But in creation, God made us people to rule creation on his behalf, to bring his creative and loving rule through us into creation. Sin disrupted our capacity to do that well. We wanted to do it our own way instead of God's way. But when we become fully human again and he restores his image in us, Creation then benefits. So creation is waiting for children of God to become who they truly are. And as we are, creation itself will be restored. And those wordless groans of creation will finally be removed as well. And so the chaos, the disorder, disease, natural disasters, all those are going to experience a full restoration, a full renovation as the children of God are revealed as well. And this is all to come by way of Jesus. So let's ask that question. Who is the active agent that's doing the revealing, the adopting, the redeeming, the saving? Who's setting off free? Sunday school answer time. Come on now. Jesus is doing it. So it's not us doing it. It's not one day we're going to work ourselves up to redeem some things. It's we are waiting on an invasion from the outside. We do not have the resources within our grasp to do it. That's a vision of secular hope is, let's see, let's count up our resources. Let's see who can be on our team. Let's figure out the technology we have available. How can we educate? Let's get everybody in the same pattern and put it all with people of power. And then from that place, we will distribute down and, and make things right. All good and well, man. We should try our best as human creative beings to do those things. But in the end, it will run into sin finds a way. You've seen a group project where you think we can all work together and collaboratively and somehow human limitation and weakness and sin finds a way for it to fall apart or for it to come in the back end and create a new problem that we didn't anticipate. Sometimes intentional with corruption, sometimes unintentional because we're just sometimes dumb in a sack of hammers. But the spirit is what is going to break in. Jesus is going to break in and bring all of that mess to fruition to make things right. And so our posture, which I'll talk about soon, is reflected in the fact that we know this is beyond our control. We do our work, we do our labor, we engage in this physical life and develop a tolerance for being in this world as a therapist I was talking with today or this week shared. We develop that tolerance for engaging in this physical life 
with the anticipation, the hopeful expectation that one day Jesus will invade again and make things right in this broken world. Content of our hope. Mm. I need to let that marry myself. Let's go on to the next part, the invisibility. This will be short but important. We often forget this one too. For in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what is seen? It's just important to reiterate that we do not have the resources available to witness this hope take place now. This cannot be kingdom on earth if we just put all of our favorite people in power to make it happen and we can advance this kingdom by our own energies and violence and power. It can't. It's a hope for something invisible, for something that we cannot envision right now. And I think that's really hard for us to embrace because as Charles Taylor said, he wrote this book, Secular Age. It's a massive tome, which I did not read, but I read the summary of it written by another scholar, which was very short and very helpful. But he described... Not, you ain't got time to read that. Nine of the pages. I don't have to find the summary. They got some spark notes on that somewhere. I, I can't get this done in time before the test. But my man up in Michigan, I forgot his name. He wrote a shorter version of it. But he just described that we live in a disenchanted secular world. That, that we've lost a sense of value in what we cannot see and expect in this flattened out world. Our full vision of happiness, comfort, and well-being to be attained in this physical life. And we live in the Western culture with the narrative of progress, that we are just on this nice, clean incline to making things right. We will encounter new problems, and we will overtake them and make things right, and things will be better in five years than they were previously. If you don't believe me, think about how often just merely citing the current year is the way to, to be frustrated by the condition we're living in. Oh my goodness, it's 2021. I can't believe we're still dealing with X. That is the expectation that as time marches on, things are just going to get better. But this hope is invisible, where there's not like a sense of it's going to get better in time in our life, but it's we're hoping for something we can't physically see yet. We're waiting on an invasion from the outside, Jesus' return to solidify and establish all of this hope to be, to be final. And so it's those kind of three things, the magnitude, the content, the invisibility of our hope, that then affects the posture we have now, which Paul shows in the next verse, 25. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. That is the posture. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words, and God, who searches the heart, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Wow waiting for it in patience. Is being told to wait not among the worst commands you can be told to? It is the worst. We would love to escape waiting at any time. I go to a restaurant and I have to wait. I'm like, oh my goodness, what am I going to do with these next eight minutes? I just don't know if I'm going to be able to absorb it. Did I leave my phone in the car? How devastating. Because I just cannot tolerate this line of waiting, man. And oh my goodness, my toddler is putting on his shoes now. We shall never leave the house. Uh, we need to pack a lunch to wait for them to tie their shoes because it just we're never going to get out of here. Being told to wait is the worst. And if we can overcome that problem, we will. But yet, that is like the core job of the Christian life is to wait in patience. And we need that patience now because I'm about you. I'm weary. It's just sheer being worn out that wears the patience thin and makes it difficult to then uh, muster up the effort to keep pressing on and going. 
We would love our sheer tiredness of waiting to be an excuse for unfaithfulness. I'm just tired. I don't want to keep waiting. I'm going to pull back. I'm going to disengage. I'm going to stop trying. I need to escape because it's too hard. But yet Jesus is calling, and Paul is calling us here to wait in patience and with open-handedness. Does that mean not act? Not at all. We're going to talk about actions in the coming weeks that matter. But when we start to act with frenetic energy and overdoing busyness, we'll be trying to escape in no time because uh, we can't keep sustaining the pace. And so instead, we begin with waiting in silence, with open-handedness, confronting our frailties, our anxieties, the illusion of control we have, our temptation to despair, our desire to rage against our fate because we wish that it wasn't so. And instead, you confront all that waiting, sitting in the presence of Jesus. I remember about this time last year, I was in the interview process with C.G. West. And I, this was the part of time when the elders were playing hard to get. Uh, it, was a, it was a long period of silence. But I followed Jesus, who invited himself over to Zacchaeus' house. I love that when Jesus did that, because now I can invite myself to his houses. And I wrote to him, and I'm like, I'm going to come visit who is going to hang out. Just, I'll, you want to move forward, don't worry, I'll come to you. And then I remember this time last year, sitting with Angie Marilyn, and Angie's the one saying, uh, I can tell by the ways we're all reacting to this, the chaos around it, she said, we just need to sit in the presence of Jesus. I remember writing that down. I left there, I wrote that down. That's what we need. The starting point is not fixing problems. The starting point is waiting in patience, in silence, without stimulation, without to-do lists, in the presence of Jesus. You sit, you wait, you confront the fears and temptations and anxieties, and then, having received this hope and love again, you act. And that action now comes from a posture that has confronted and dealt with our delusions that we have as much control as we imagine. And our, our recognition that we don't have as much control, that we can react with our attitudes and our feeble actions emanated by the Spirit, but we don't have the true power. But when we do that and sit in silence, you will discover that you don't have the words. I know that you will, because I often have the words, and regularly during that time, I don't have the words. You will see a man who is a man of many words, but when I sit in the presence of Jesus, I kind of mum, I don't have I don't have the words. They're sighs too deep for words. But then he says that the Spirit sighs with us, without words. The Spirit doesn't have words. He groans too. Isn't that beautiful? You know when you're in your deepest suffering and someone comes to visit you and fills your life with words, what do you want? That person to depart from your presence. <laughs> I don't want your words right now. I just want you to cry with me. You know what I mean? That's what the Spirit does. He made us like that and he knows that's what we really need. We don't need a bunch of words. We need to sit in his presence. He's going to sit in our presence. And as that, he's going to groan on our behalf and let those inaudible groans somehow find a way to be words that are in tune with the will of God. And so you have a spirit groaning in union with the Father, but in you who is groaning, in creation that groans. Man, we just need to sit down and think about this for a second. Let it marinate. That, that's all, that we are visit, that communion of groaning and waiting for God to finally react and say it done and make things right. And in the meantime, we wait in patience, trusting in God being in charge and not ourselves and trust that in the end, he's going to make things right. We're going to want to sit with him on his team. 
And he has shown this, not with just words from afar. He didn't send some, he didn't leave a post and note for us while he was absent. He didn't send a carrier pigeon from a far away. He didn't send just a messenger. He himself became a human being and spoke in words and in actions that we can comprehend to declare his victory over all the sin, Satan, and death that wages war on our bodies and on our souls and on creation around us. And from that, his deathly sacrifice on the cross, he has once and for all put the death knell into those effects on us and ensured this permanent victory that we wait on one day. And so for now, that victory is fully present now, yet not yet fully consummated. And it's that hope that we sit and wait with patience. Let's pray.